This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? Be? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. Welcome to Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me. I'm back in Brooklyn. It's the last week of August. I'm trying to get some rest. I hope you are too. This fall is going to be weird. So let's save our strength and let's be safe. Because it's the last week of August, it was 2020, it is a good time to talk politics and the media business, so we're going to do that with two chats. First up is the New York Times great James Ponowazek, who covers TV, which means he's really an astute political reporter. And I talked about the virtual conventions we've been watching, um, the Democrats and now the Republicans, and, and what that tells us about the state of politics. Then after that, we've got a chat with CNN's Brian Stelter, who's got a new book out, Hoax. It's about the way Donald Trump and Fox News have essentially become the same thing. As Brian and I discussed, I've got a problem with the folks in his book who argue that Fox News has been sort of twisted and warped and corrupted by Trump because I don't think it was ever a a straight player to begin with. But Brian's got lots of good details about the way it's been specifically corrupted and warped during the Trump years. These are both good conversations. I think you're going to like them. So let's get right to them. First up is James Ponowazek. I'm here with James Ponowazek, who I kind of attempted to describe as my favorite Trump reporter, even though you don't actually report on Trump. You provide criticism of Donald Trump's appearances on television, which I think is the best way to report on Donald Trump. Welcome back, James Thank Ponowazek. Thank you. If, it, if it's got the word favorite in it, I am fine with the description. You should accept it. Uh, you were on before because you talked about your book, Audience of One. Uh, which, again, is sort of an analysis of Donald Trump through the TV lens, which, again, I think is the right way to talk about Donald Trump. And I wanted to bring you back to talk about the Republican National Convention and the Democratic National Convention, which, as all of us know, are not actually real conventions because there's a pandemic. And I wanted to get your sense of how these things work when you can't gather thousands of people in a convention hall and and what that looks like to put on a virtual convention. We're halfway, we've seen all the DNC, we're halfway through the RNC. So very big picture. How does this stuff work as television? Well, very big picture. You know, it's funny you said that they're, they're not real conventions and I get that, but it raises this philosophical question of what's a real convention, right? Because the, the, the thousands of people in a room has sort of been a vestigial element for a long time. Like no real news has happened at them for, for decades, mostly. Um, And so they have mattered more as TV events and those people in the room matter as an audience and providing dynamics and sometimes a sense of, of conflict. Um, but big picture, what has happened this year is, thanks to COVID-19, um, the conventions have morphed into sort of their, their purest expression as pure television. Uh, the Republican convention has, I think for certain uh, messaging reasons, 
been a little more concretely location based that in, in ways that here here are people in an audience you can see they're not dying yeah, and they and they rely on certain specific locations over and over again and you know I think that is that is sending a message the democratic convention really was it was pure television like it literally did not exist as an event until it was brought together on your screen. It's it sewed together like much pandemic and other television does, like a newscast in a way. You know, uh, a person speaking in sort of an anchor base from far-flung people all over the place. And so, you know, cliche alert, but you know, more than ever, you know, the media, the medium kind of became the message with this. Uh, does it work? Does it work as television programming? It works and it doesn't work, you know, like a lot of... I mean, look... <laughs> I, I, you know, does how many people have a favorite political convention that they've watched? You know, they 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 have they may have great and memorable moments. Uh, they generally do not hold together in the best years as riveting, you know, stretches of programming. Um, but you know, I did think that really both of them in different ways technically adapted to the limitations of the time better than I would expected uh, than I would have expected. There's that great Twitter shot of, of, of the producer for the DNC who did yeah. it in his shorts in his, as we uh, should in all his be house. working. Uh, Cause we're sort of wonder as, as living the dream right now. And yeah. I, th I thought, yeah, that, that, that seems right. Although very impressive that they were able to sort of one guy can sling that together. With uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, the, uh, the, you know, the, the, the way we live now. And, you know, there, there were elements of it that seemed sort of uncanny and weird in the way that a lot of, you know, our Zoom existence now does. But I think it also forced some innovations that were arguably improvements. Speeches were faster. Uh, that, you know, mm -hmm. uh, roll call of the states was both visually impressive and like your ideal with a political convention, right, is you want the thing to look good, but you also want the look to say something. And it kind of encapsulated a message. We are the party of diversity. We're a country where people look different and wear different things and have different traditions and speak different languages. And, and that's, you know, and that's good. Um, and, the, and the Republican convention, you know, quickly, again, we can sort of compare them uh, later. But technically, uh, in some ways, it had a simpler job because it's that sort of static podium. But again, um, I remember more sort of uh cringeworthy uh, uh glitches in the 2016 Republican convention if you can remember back that far uh than there have been in the 2020 so the main far. thing I remember there was the was the was the t the Ted Cruz will he won't he and then Trump showing up in the balcony yeah I mean that one might have been more a feature than a bug in that you know that did appeal to like Trump's WWE side but th there were there were giant video monitors that went on the fritz and the the convention ran way too long or way too short uh you know it's Scott Baio, uh, Scott, Scott Baio, Duck Dynasty guys, uh, Antonio Sabato Jr., uh, I believe. Uh, so, and I, I, you know, I want, I want to skip ahead because this was my, my end up question, but um, and we'll, we'll come back. But I do remember watching that convention and going, "This is in they, they cannot, the Trump people cannot put together a convention, which is an infomercial for themselves. So they certainly can't run the country, and they certainly can't win an election. And obviously, I was wrong about at least one of those things. So. If we want to zoom out to the very big picture, 
Um, and I, and I want to keep talking about sort of how these conventions work on TV, but does any of this matter politically if the DNC convention uh, we thought was aesthetically better and the RNC one was kind of crappy and tinny and echoey? Does any of it I matter? I think it, in, it, in the it can matter. In a close election like 2016, every single thing matters. All right. You know, I just I think that it is not easily predictable in the ways that we try to while the convention is going on, you know, which is to say people obsess over the ratings when they come out and compare the ratings. And there, there's actually very little correlation between the ratings and who wins the election. There are, you know, there, there are sort of video images and degrees of competency that are shown in the production and they send messages, but like every kind of messaging, you can't necessarily predict how it will play out, right? So like looking at 2016, the Democrats convention was very smooth and competent and well-produced and there were celebrities and it visually looked very good and it ran on time. The Republicans was, you know, wild and contentious and the crowd booed Ted Cruz and there were, you know, was, was this glitch and that glitch and it felt out of control. Uh, but that was sort of of a piece with the aesthetic and the ethos of, of Trump's 2016 campaign, part of whose argument was, you are tired of things for whatever reason, you're mad, you feel left out, whatever, you want to just like throw a brick through the window. You know, here is that misshapen brick that we are handing you. Uh, and, and, you know, and again, he did lose the popular vote. Uh, but in an election where it ended up being very close and, you know, turning in some states on the enthusiasm of a certain set of voters, many of whom, you know, for many of whom looking like the WWE was not a bad thing, uh, you, you know, that, that can make a difference. And I kept all that in mind while, you know, um, I haven't watched a minute live of the RNC and barely any of the DNC. Uh, but lucky I saw man. The clips of Kimberly Guilfoyle and the memes of her, you know, screaming uh, and and Don Trump Jr.'s red eyes and thinking, bad, this is a bad look. But I, I know now to at least not assume that that is meaningful or that is interpreted the same way around the country as I'm looking at it as, a, as an amateur shit show. Um, you mentioned the ratings. Um, Donald Trump cares about ratings. Um, um, I, I mentioned I haven't watched it. Um, what, what? How have these things performed overall? Uh, as we speak, we've seen ratings only for the first you know, for comparison for the first night of the the RNC, and the Democrats are did better on the first night of their convention by about by about by about three million, which is which is a which is a familiar number for the Democrats ah, you know, margin for the Democrats to do better than the Republicans, and you know. And I'm assuming they're both down from the year before, from the four years before, right? But just because live TV is from four years before, which again, you know, just as something that sort of drives TV ratings nerds nuts, people read all sorts of things into. But as you know, just knowing the global state of the media, everything's numbers are lower than they were four years ago. That is the state of entropy that we live in. So that doesn't surprise me, and I think that's not really a useful. Uh, comparison, you know, the thing where I think the ratings maybe matter is, you know, number one, obviously, I don't think relative ratings are any sign of who's going to win an election. But obviously, the reason you're having a convention at all is to get a message out there. You would prefer more people see it than fewer. Another thing that's kind of interesting to me is how many of the people watching 
given their choice of TV outlets, are probably intense loyalists whose minds were made up, right? So the biggest network for the DNC was MSNBC, which clobbered everybody else every night. And for Mm -hmm. Republicans, the first night, Fox News got an even bigger number than MSNBC was getting the week before. And I want to say the figure was like 45% around that of, of the total TV viewership of the convention was watching on Fox. Well, I'm guessing that's probably a pretty high percentage of committed viewers. And maybe if I'm in the RNC, I would wish to be reaching a few more people on NBC, CBS, ABC who might still be deciding if those people still exist. While, while we're on that topic, the, uh, Donald Trump praised CNN in a tweet that I that I had to read several times for 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 showing the convention in its entirety. What is what is his? I am assuming he's complaining about someone else. What is what is the point of that message? His measure of good coverage of the conventions, of course, is how much of the convention itself networks are showing, as opposed to breaking in with their commentators and pundit panels and so forth. And here's another just lovely irony of politics today is is that Fox showed a good bit less of uh, the first night of the Republican convention than MSNBC did. MSNBC, really, from my skipping around, I don't have, you know, know, granular minute-by-minute figures, but has been showing more of the raw feed than anybody on cable. That's sort of been their thing. They'll break in occasionally. But, you know, if you watched Fox the first night, you know, Tucker and Hannity are on the air for a lot of that. And I, I, honestly, I think part of what Trump is doing, as he has been doing with Fox for a while, is kind of trying to work his own refs and saying, you know, kind of like calling the control room and saying, hey, buddy, this is the show, you know, a, a little more yap, 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 a little more Donnie Trump, you know, <laughs> so. What is good about this format overall? If we're in a world, uh, next year or sorry, four years from now, um, where we can gather in, in places together and presumably there'll be a, a, a drive to do that. What parts of this virtual convention should should the parties think about keeping? Uh, it's been shorter and tighter. The speeches, again, I just have more of the DNC to judge by. I thought especially at the DNC moved faster and were tighter paced. There was more of an emphasis on video segments going out in the country and talking to regular voters, again, particularly at the DNC, which you know I've seen, seen all of uh, at this point. And those were really effective, I thought, much more so than a lot of the, the you know, stuff that's sort of aimed to the people in the room at normal conventions. Uh, I mentioned the video roll call at the Democratic convention, which was just visually amazing. And I think that that is just, you know, in the larger sense, uh, good to just get out once once we have a a convention room again, to get out of it uh, to the extent that you can and bring the rest of the world in. And and what and what will what do you think will work better when you have thousands of people in a room shouting, what 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 does that improve? Well, it, it you know it it allows for a different kind of speech to work. It is a feedback mechanism. <laughs> you uh, tell a joke and people laugh, you know, and that is one thing that you know I've noticed a lot of in the convention speeches this year is is that the ones that worked well adopted to the fact that, hey, you're not giving the speech you wanted to give at a convention. You're giving a direct to camera speech. So zingers don't work. You know, big applause lines don't work. Uh, that that Kimberly Guilfoyle speech at the at the RNC, P- 
people might have been, you know, making fun of the next day regardless, you know, kind of the way they did Pat Buchanan's speech in 1992. But it sounded just absolutely wild, just addressed to an empty and it was it was taped it was taped they could have said oh it doesn't work and the part where you held your arms out and and kind of shrieked let's take that again right that was not live right and you have some sense of kimberly guilfoyle's resume right she was a tv professional she was a fox news personality you should know enough about tv to know that something plays differently to an audience than it does in a tv studio which you essentially are are in so so but you know but when you have that crowd then you want to play to that crowd and show that you're making a connection to them and you play off because, you know, the audience at home is hearing it sort of as as an applause meter. But it rewards a different kind of speech. You know, we saw, I don't know what Donald Trump is going to do Thursday night yet, uh, but the speech Joe Biden gave uh, was really, although he was standing up like an Oval Office address, basically. It was, a, it was a, the, the tone of a president speaking to the country after slash during a tragedy and crisis and sharing empathetically and saying, you know, I've been there. And and the moments that worked best were not things that built to a crescendo, but like where he used silence and, you know, let things sink in and so forth. Right. So. Your, your piece uh, uh, talking about that was describing the contrast between that and Kamala Harris's thing, which was done basically in an empty, empty, you know, it looked like an empty stage. Um, and that came off I mean, people liked it, but uh, or at least in my Twitter feed, no surprise. But to me, it seemed weird, like a weird, like, don't give a speech in an empty room. Find some other way of doing it. And there was those weird shots where they'd pull back and you could see there were like a half dozen reporters socially distanced, somehow taking notes. And it seemed like, oh, this is exactly what you don't want to do is like keep the worst and least interesting parts of of that convention and, and not adapt to it. But it seems like they figured it out a day later. Yeah, uh, it was it was spooky at times when, you know, they, they pulled back and showed her surrounded by those empty posts with the state names where people would have been like yeah. they had just been, you know, vapor, you know, like the leftovers or something. Uh-huh. Uh, just, been, just been raptured off. And maybe that leaned into that, you know, things are weird because of the pandemic thing, but it just didn't, it was a good speech given by somebody I remember from the primaries, a generally good speaker in front of crowds that was not for that room. And two th- one thought is they learned from that and changed things up for the next night. The other thought is they were going to be using this room twice. You, It's going to steal Biden's thunder if you do the same thing twice and you give the best presentation to your headliner. You know, I, I don't know the thinking, but one way or the other, the, the second time they did it the way that was actually suited to that circumstance. So to bring this back full circle, professional Donald Trump watcher, um, the RNC does not have stars. It has by design and by circumstance, one star, it's Donald Trump. Normally the, the way these are, these conventions are paced out is you only get to see the presidential nominee at the last night, right? But Trump is doing, he's appearing every night. And then I think he's also doing uh, speeches during the day. Um, I think normally you'd say that's not a good idea. Um, you're not going to tell Trump that. Do you think it is a good idea to, to, to bring Donald Trump on camera for consecutive days? I mean, it it can be. You know, I do think that, you know, Donald Trump is somebody who believes that the solution to any problem is more Trump. And like with his, you know, coronavirus pandemic briefings, you know, as you saw, both, you know, just sort of in terms of reviews and from the polls, they seem to hurt him a lot more than than they helped uh you know so all these sorts of things they help depending on you know what kind of audience you're trying you're uh, you're 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 trying to help with 
one thing that they have done with him in his appearances at the RNC was to do more taped segments. Uh, there have been these bits so far every night where the first night he meets with these small groups, um, uh, essential workers in the pandemic and hostages who have been released from foreign countries. Uh, Tuesday night, they use the White House basically as a reality show set to stage a presidential pardon and a, an immigration naturalization ceremony, sort of softening his image. Here is merciful Trump pardoning a, a remorseful felon. Here is magnanimous Trump. See, he doesn't, he doesn't hate every immigrant. He likes these five that you see right here. Uh, and, and it reminded me, professional apprentice watcher that I am, of the way the, the apprentice would often frame him. Like we think of, if you just watch The Apprentice a little bit, the first thing you think of is you're fired, right? That was a big part of the persona that it established for him. He is the tough, tells it like it is, decisive businessman who cuts the dead wood and puts people in their place. But it also emphasized the sort of, you know, munificent uh, kind of backslapping host Trump who would give people rewards and announce donations to charity and take people for rides in his helicopter. And I think their version of, you know, sort of softening Trump's image at the RNC, because I just I really think you can't plausibly sell him as, you know, Mr. Deep Feeling Super Empathy, is to present him in this sort of role of, you know, the 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 president doling out rewards. Right. Tough, tough, but fair. I, if, if you please me, I can, I can reward and, you. Yeah. And, and it's sort of, you know, I, I, yeah, I give you, I give you something of value and then you, you praise me and I collect my praise. I think of Trump over the last four years at his best when he is on stage and has gone off script. Whenever I see him sort of tr struggling to, to read a script and he does that thing where he kind of leans to the side and doesn't really like the words that Stephen Miller wrote for him, it doesn't seem to work. Did, did these taped segments work? Um, they did in parts and they didn't in parts because in parts, like at the, the naturalization ceremony, he is reading off a script and he does have that thing where, you know, he is an, he is an improv artist. He kind of looks like he's given a book report whenever, you know, at best when he is reading a prepared text. But when he's just doing little back and forth with, uh, with people, he's much more comfortable. He can actually joke around a bit, feels natural. You feel like sort of a connection being made. And by the way, not for nothing, this is something where fairly or not, um, it probably helps him out, um, sort of subliminally that the RNC is doing this thing of denying that the pandemic exists. And so there's no social distancing and there are no masks and you can see everybody's faces, which psychologically we're just trained to look for reaction in faces. And so, you know, that may sort of boost those appearances, but yeah, it's when he has, you know, off the cuff interactions, which from his rallies to, you know, his, his, you know, to moments on The Apprentice, that's really what he he does well and where, where he's most comfortable. James, I'm much more uh, delighted to have this conversation than I actually am to, to watch any of this TV. So you're doing the Lord's work. You got you got two more nights of this stuff to watch and then write up. Um, I encourage everyone to go read James's work in The Times. James, thanks for your time. Thanks again to James. As you can tell in that conversation, I really do enjoy his writing. I think if for some reason you're not reading his stuff, you, you should be reading his stuff. You'll enjoy it too, especially if you like this podcast. Uh, we're going to hear from Brian Stelter in a minute, but first we want to hear from some fine sponsors. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. 
because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. Okay, here's my conversation with Brian Stelter. Uh, I recently talked with Brian Stelter because Brian Stelter is interviewing me, and now I get to turn the tables back to the more comfortable <laughs> position where I get to ask Brian Stelter questions. You all know who Brian Stelter is. He's from CNN. This is uh, He's got one best-selling book called Top of the Morning, which then became an Apple TV Plus show, and now he's got a second best-selling book. We can call it a best-selling book, right, Brian? I believe you can because it, it did... Um surprisingly hit number one on Amazon uh, a few days ago. And, and I read in Axios that the, the your publisher had to scramble to, to order new copies because it's it's in such demand. Congratulations. We are printing another 100,000 copies. I, I think that speaks a lot less to me and a lot more to interest in all things Trump. The book is called Hoax, Donald Trump, Fox News, and the Dangerous Distortion of Truth. Welcome, Brian Stelter. Um, Brian, my understanding of this book, having read it, is you are talking about the fact that since 2016, essentially, um, the chief programmer of Fox News is Donald Trump, mm. um, and that Fox News has become sort of, in, in, as a whole and in, in individually, sort of one of the chief advisors to Donald Trump. It's it's sort of this, this I don't know if it's a virtuous circle, but it's certainly a circle. <laughs> um, is that a fair assessment of what of what the book is talking about? Yes. And I felt like somebody needed to put all of these threads in one place, in one book, because uh, we, we've certainly seen hundreds of examples of the president tweeting about Fox, reacting to Fox, making poor choices because of Fox. But I think when you when you look back at the last three and a half years, it's been even worse than, than many people realize. I still think, Peter, even though we're in 2020, this dreaded year, that um, too often news coverage of what Trump is doing or not doing misses the Fox angle. So often he reacts to something, gets misled, gets lied to, lied to, then he starts lying to the country, and it's all starting on Fox. So I tried to trace that and show how he's basically producing Fox, he's kind of programming Fox, but Fox is also programming and producing him. It's not a virtuous cycle, it's more of a vicious cycle. You have been writing about this for years. You've been covering it sort of incrementally. You'll do occasionally bigger heaves on it. You'll talk about this on your TV show, on your podcast. Other journalists have written about this. Jane Mayer had a big piece uh, yeah. within the last year. What is what is new and important in the book that people people aren't aware of? I think there are two elements that are really important. The first, of course, is the pandemic and how Fox and Trump both downplayed the pandemic. Um, I've recorded new examples of this. I, I both start and end the book with this crisis and describe how, how irresponsible the coverage of it was. I think the other really important piece and the new piece is ultimately why I went out and asked to get this book deal in the first place, 
which is what sources inside Fox have been telling me about what it's like there. Because, you know, Peter, you and I, we, we know what Fox is like. We know what the Murdochs are like. There's a, a general sense of Fox as a conservative news outlet uh, with a lot of, you know, talk shows. And it's been that way for many years. But in the Trump years, it is different. Trump has hijacked this network. Uh, staffers say it's gone off the rails. They say management encourages propaganda and discourages reporting. And they say there's a lack of clear leadership. So there's a bunch of different fiefdoms and these stars just do what they want. And I had a lot of sources leaking to me about this because they're so concerned about it. That, that's really what drove me to say, okay, I, this is more than a news story. It's more than a, a blog item. This is an entire book. The, the idea that there are people at Fox who are either good journalists and or who are dismayed about the way that, that Fox has moved in the last four years is something you document here over and over. But it's also a little hard for me to stomach as a reader and as a consumer of media news um, for a decade, right? Anyone who remembers the old Daily Show with Jon Stewart, um, every episode was was a denunciation of, of Fox and, and and how skewed their programming was and how bad it was for the country. And those were the good old days. Those are the pre-Trump days. And so the, <laughs> and and sometimes when I read this book, it sounds like the people within Fox are sort of saying, "Well, we were a respectable news organization up until 2016, and then things went awry. And boy, wouldn't it be great if we could go back to the old Rod." Roger Ailes days. And it, it strikes me as a weird kind of revisionism. Um, I guess the other way to argue is like, look, it's so bad there that those are the good old days, that that Trump is beyond the pale, even for a Fox News person. But it's it's a little hard for me to sort of have empathy or sympathy for the good journalists at Fox. It's one thing if you showed up there in the very early days and said, I don't like this. But if you've been there for the last five or six or 10 years, you know, right. what you, were, you, you knew what you had signed on for. Right. Well, let me put it this way. 10 years ago, Fox didn't have a standards and practices department either. 10 years ago, they didn't have a commitment to fact-checking either. 10 years ago, they didn't have the kind of accountability that you need to have to have a respectable newsroom. So that that is all true. I think the difference now is the merger between Trump and Fox, and that that's what has made so many people inside the network uncomfortable. Uh, you know, a lot of these sources acknowledge, I get it. And you know, I work for a place that's both a political operation, a political project, as well as a news operation. Um, but what's different now is this merger between Trump and the GOP and Fox and Hannity. Uh, a lot of these staffers were saying, you know, we should have a more responsible version of a conservative news network. Of course, I think the question we would ask then is, would anybody want to watch that? Is there an audience for that? Because some of what's changed at Fox is what's changed in the GOP. It's Trumpism writ large. Right. And so there's a, there's a big question about sort of what does a post-Trump world look like for, for all of us, but specifically at Fox? Is that is it still the Trump channel or do they sort of switch to sort of conventional Republican programming if there is such a thing? We're, we're speaking, uh, not coincidentally, during the week of the RNC, um, which is, again, programmed by Trump. It looks a lot like Fox <laughs> programming. You also t and, and you do spend a lot of time talking about the pandemic um, and sort of the failure of Fox there. Again, I was a little bit struck. I wrote a piece of media criticism a few months ago about sort of how the media 
got a lot of things wrong. I think I quoted you in that um, yes. early on in, in in the pandemic. And I had an aside there saying, I'm not even bothering to talk about Fox here because no one <laughs> expected Fox to provide useful information. It's purely a, an arm of, of Donald Trump and vice versa. And and there was no there should have been no expectation that you were going to get helpful information from Fox. I guess you could argue that's deeply cynical, but deeply. I think it's also accurate. Um, you know, if you were looking for useful information about a global health crisis, you would not turn to Fox News. Why is it important for you to spend all the time documenting their failures? Well, well hold on, Peter. You wouldn't turn to Fox News. <laughs> but what about this woman from Bluffton, South Carolina, who, who wrote to the FCC and said, my mother, who is 94 years old, believes the virus threat is way overstated because of Fox News and Sean Hannity. They have or, failed, or they about, failed the country and they failed their viewers. It, it's despicable, but, but millions not, of people but not surprising. Them them. Yes. It, it's not surprising to you, but I think it was surprising to this resident from Russellville, Alabama, who wrote to the FCC and said, Fox News is now costing the lives of Americans. Or uh, Kansas City, uh, someone wrote, Hannity has misled his elderly viewers. They are most at risk. Uh, my, my point is, um, there is a, a, a poor, there's a segment of the country that, um, does and did and still does trust Fox and expects uh, real reporting from the network, even about the pandemic. After right? that piece came out, I, I got the the standard emails and then phone call from a public relations person at Fox and said, well, I just want you to be clear that you know, they, they had a, a minor fact-checking argument. And then they said, hey, we, want you, we want you to understand that Fox has news programming and they have opinion programming and the, the two things are separate. And they, they could barely muster the enthusiasm to tell me that. Um, yeah, you, know, is, you brought up something really important, which is they don't make that argument as loudly as they used to. It's because <laughs> it's very hard to make, but it is still the standard argument. Again, I don't think it makes any sense. I was going to ask you, do you think there's anyone within Fox that still believes this, that there's some distinction between the straight Fox News and the opinion Fox News? I saw the wall between news and opinion get taken down brick by brick in the past few years. I mean, the wall was never that tall or strong to begin with, but it has been taken down. Still, though, people like Chris Wallace, when they're in public, when they're asked about this, they say there's a wall. They say there's a division. Um, the, the, you can just watch the network to see that there's not. CEO Suzanne Scott, she's the, the, the woman who runs Fox News, she wants the newscast to be more opinionated. She wants more partisan guests. She wants the newscasts to run clips of Hannity and Fox and Friends. So it's those kinds of choices. It's, it's like bit by bit by bit. Step by step by step, they've gradually become Trumpier and Trumpier and Trumpier. Even even you know in the last three years, um, and it you know gosh, I, I, these staffers who spoke with me, they would never call themselves the resistance, you know, but there is a resistance inside Fox to this increasing amount of propaganda. I want to talk about your relationship with Fox and and Fox News. I was scared you were going to ask about that. Uh, you mentioned it in here uh, 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 multiple times. Um, we'll start with it at the end. So you, at one point, there's a young Fox staffer who goes on the record to talk to you about, about yeah. how upset he is. Yeah. He's sort of a, a very junior level, I think, researcher, producer. Um, and you say, I got this email from him. Um, and my first thought was, maybe this is a trap. And I thought, <laughs> man, that is telling. If if when you're when you're worried that 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 well you tell me who you think might be trying to entrap you yes. with a fake source uh, yes. regarding Fox News. I assumed that this source was too good to be true because he was on the record. He said he was a researcher at Fox News. Yeah, that's what his LinkedIn page said. 
but it was hard to verify that he really worked there and it was hard to verify that he was legit. I figured he was a plant by Fox News PR in order to, uh, to trap me and then discredit me. Because if they could say I fell for one fake source, then they could say I fell for lots of them, right? So Brian, uh, a, a person who hasn't spent much time thinking about Fox News and how they work would go, <laughs> I know, it what sounds crazy. kind of paranoid person are you that you think people are trying to entrap you uh-huh. with fake news stories? Uh-huh. But- uh- Everybody should Google Fox News PR, right? Read David Carr's famous story about the tactics at Fox News. Uh, and by the way, I think those tactics were were darker and, and, and more um, uh, unethical back in the Roger Ailes days. I mean, to be fair to the current operation, I think the, some of the black ops stuff was much more extreme in the Roger Ailes days. And by the way, and true, right? And, and, and we've d- seen definitive reporting from Gabe Sherman and, and David Carr, like you mentioned, about sort of this operation they had right. to sort of track and discredit um, people who wrote uh, unkind things about yeah. them. And but, but I still had to be careful. I, for example, in November of last year, um, Shep Smith's first big event after leaving Fox, uh, there was a table of people uh, at the event from Fox News. Uh, this was a um, Committee to Protect Journalists gala, and there was a Fox News table or two. And those Fox News employees were warned ahead of time, Brian Sutter's going to be there. Uh, be careful. You know, He's going to try to talk to you. He's working on a book. At the end of the night, we were all at this... Um, this cocktail party, this after dinner reception uh, out in the lobby. And I put my computer in my work bag over in the corner. I just, you know, I left it over there so I could go get a, go get a beer. And I noticed there was a group of employees from Fox News who, who walked over and they were standing near my bag. And they're like, oh, who left this bag here? You know? And when I came over to claim it, they joked about how they should have called it in as a suspicious package. But here's what actually happened, Peter. Literally, this is, I can't believe this. This is true. The, one of the producers called Fox PR and let them know Brian Stelter might have been secretly taping me in his computer bag. Maybe he left it there because he was trying to secretly tape record. Like, <laughs> it's crazy. But that paranoia is still real. It's still there. It still exists at Fox. And and you recount you recounted this before, but I think it's in the book as well, right? Uh, you you went on a date at one point. In your, in well, no, I life? thought these were dates. You thought it was, it was this a date? Fox News intern. This was uh, back in two thousand four, two thousand five. You know, when I was just starting my blog, TV Newser, uh, Fox News did dispatch a PR intern to uh, strike up a friendship with me, uh, in order to um, uh, see if I had any weak spots. You know, find out more about me, find out what I really thought, see what they could get information to use against me, and. Uh, but I am far from the only reporter that has experienced these techniques. So I, I have never been set up as far as I know. With a no, as far as you date. know. Yeah. As far as you know. But that researcher was real. This this uh, man, Sean Graff, was a real staffer. The way I verified it, by the way, is when I went out the next day to have coffee with a, another source, um, I had him go on his phone, look through the directory of Fox News email addresses, make sure Sean really had a Fox email address. You know, There were steps like that I was taking to make sure he wasn't a trap. So you have that behind the scenes skullduggery, which sounds fantastical, but but is actually true. And then sort of on screen and on the Internet, um, you are a constant target of invective from Fox uh, talent, from uh, Hannity on down, from Fox viewers, from the president himself. Occasionally I'll get caught up in your mentions and I see a little glimpse of how miserable it is. <laughs> what, what is it like for you to do your job, which in large part is sort of covering Fox and the president and their relationship day to day and and having to sort of wade through this muck? I assume it affects your mm. family. Uh, we've already seen sort of other instances of, of reporters being doxxed sort of at the behest of the right wing media conspiracy. Um, it seems like a 
really it's you're not a, you're not a, you're not a war correspondent right you didn't sign on to sort of parachute into a place where you're going to be put into harm's way but it seems like you're getting a bit of that anyway you're right um you know i don't want to overstate it because i have a pretty and i'm literally sitting on a cushion i have a pretty comfortable role <laughs> i'm able to work from home in this pandemic uh, i'm not i'm not on any front lines but it is wild out there the the venom has become so much more um, present and uh, and pervasive. I, I suppose the answer to your question is I have thicker skin now and I have fewer hair follicles. Like I, I try to joke about this. I try to be I try to be lighthearted about it, but it is aw- it is awful. These coordinated campaigns to troll and target critics, uh, and and I know that this happens in many different directions, and many are are you know um, targeted. But from what I've seen, it has become more severe in the past few years. So what happens when Hannity calls me Humpty Dumpty on TV? Well, I get a lot of hate tweets. I get some hate emails, you know, that sort of thing. And that's usually all that happens. But uh, I write in the book about a death threat that um, was against me that aired live on C-SPAN. And I, I believe it is traced back to Sean Hannity's show the night before. I don't, I don't blame Hannity because I know Hannity gets death threats as well, and that's despicable. But uh, we do have to see how these words and how these tweets and how these memes have consequences. I always think about the meme. I forget if we talked about this before, this meme about Jeffrey Epstein that claims that me and Chris Cuomo and Jake Tapper were secretly on one of Epstein's private jets. And the meme something like, you know, why were they on the flight logs? And I don't know how to respond to that kind of level of crazy. How do I, how do I disprove that I've ever been on a private plane with Jeffrey Epstein? Like that's, it's a level of crazy that I have not experienced in the pre-Trump years. You have a wife. You have two young kids. Is this, is it, do you ever think, this may not be worth it for me uh, and my family to, to continue to play in this toxic sandbox? I have not had that thought, but I have wondered what it's going to be like when Sonny, who's now three, Googles my name someday and sees some of this sickness. Um, if she sees that Epstein meme, for example. You know, she might wonder someday, um, Daddy, why did the president call you a, a loser? I forget exactly what Trump's tweet said. I, I guess it I guess it didn't matter that much to me. But, you know, he, he insulted me one Sunday afternoon because of something I said about Fox News. Ironic, actually, given <laughs> the subject of this book. But but I hope when she finds the president's tweet and asks me why the president insulted me, I'll say, read hoax. I mean, I, I literally will say, like, I tried to write it all down. I tried to explain it. And And as much as I am trying to be lighthearted about this, Peter... This, this is a version of what happened in 1930s Germany. Back then, it was lying press. You lying press. Uh, it's different now. We're not living in Nazi Germany. But that same approach to the media is occurring in the United States. And uh, you don't have to look far to know whose fault that is. It is the president's fault. It is Hannity's fault. It is the fault of these pro-Trump propagandists who have decided they have to make you believe everything could be a hoax. They have to make you believe that there's no real truth anymore. And uh, I would never think about stepping away from this job because um, we have to stand up for what's just, you know, I don't want to say stand up for the truth. It sounds all self-important, but you know, we've got to keep doing our jobs. There's an earlier version of this world, and this existed in politics too, where you would sort of fight in public, and then afterwards you could retire to the club and, and have a cocktail together. Right. And if things got really nasty, your boss could reach out to their boss, and they right. could try to quash it. And that, and that not that long ago, right? Was, was there was a, I think was it was it Hannity was it 
O'Reilly and Zucker at one point sort of having a tete-a-tete. Um, any sort of impulse or maybe even action to sort of say, hey, look, c- can we just have a conversation about this? Can we tone it down? Or are we well past the point where that it would even be a plausible option? Uh, I hate to say it, but I think we're past that point. I mean, there's a couple exceptions. I, I would say on the day that the first mail bomb arrived at CNN in 2018, uh, Fox News did offer help to CNN um, if, in case we had a hard time getting back on the air. Uh, CBS offered help that day. So you know, there are there are moments where you see a little bit of ray of light. Um, Fox News also put out a statement, I believe, that day uh, denouncing the mail bomb attack. Um, but those examples are so few and far between. Speaking of, of crazy and conspiracy and things going too far, um, we are the media is belatedly sort of waking up to QAnon and sort of what that what that movement, if you want to call it a movement, means. And, and, and we're seeing the embrace of, of the, the Republican Party and Trump sort of embracing QAnon. There will be QAnon believers in Congress, most likely uh, this fall. Um uh, it's it's I assume it's leaking into Fox. We saw there was one sort of high profile is, instance where Jesse Waters sort of gave them a shout out and then they, yeah. then was sort of forced to apologize or the network apologized. Um, is there any thought within Fox of like, look, we all know what's going on, but this this we have to stop. We, we can't go down this route. There are certainly some people very concerned about uh, that rabbit hole uh, and uh, folks at Fox fall into that rabbit hole. But I don't think they're in positions of power. Uh, the Jesse Waters case is very revealing because Jesse Waters went on one weekend while interviewing one of the president's sons and said, yeah, you know, QAnon has done some, said some crazy stuff, done some crazy stuff, but you know, uh, they some were good great on Epstein. There. Yeah. yeah. They were, they were great on the deep state. What the hell does that mean? Now this happened on a Saturday and it was Sunday and I asked for comment and Fox didn't respond. And then eventually they had Jesse Waters put out a weak statement where he was like, I don't believe in QAnon. That was basically what he said. But there's no evidence of even a slap on the wrist. I thought that was a worrisome episode because he was flirting with QAnon in a way that I hadn't seen on Fox News before. And uh, I do wonder if we're going to see more of that in the months to come. It seems inevitable, right? I mean, there was, a, uh, I guess, last night at the RNC, there, uh, uh, there had a speaker who'd, who'd uh, retweeted some, some particularly vile QAnon stuff, and, and she was scrubbed from the agenda last minute. But I think it's just a matter of time before that person shows up on national TV speaking at, at a Republican-sanctioned thing. And, and at that point, you know, there certainly won't be anything holding Fox back from endorsing that idea. Well, one of the themes of my book is about leadership and lack of leadership uh, at Fox News. It's it's as if when Roger Ailes was forced out by the Murdochs, uh, when he was ousted, there was a power vacuum that has never been filled since. And in a way, it's really Trump that's filled it because there there was never a strong leader at Fox after Ailes. Um, what was remarkable to me in my interviews was how many people seemed to miss Roger Ailes there. Mm-hmm. Good old you days know, where you had this despot with a gun harassing women. Right, bring it's, back. it's astonishing from the outside to hear people say this. And I, and I hate to even bring it up, but it's, it's true. Um, I had a former Fox anchor who uh, quit because they were just, they were tired of all the Trumpiness uh, say to me, I think America would be better if uh, Roger Ailes were still in charge of Fox news. And they thought America would also be better. If Bill O'Reilly still had a show on Fox. Yeah. And I, and I was like, what are you talking about? And this person said, look, Ailes would have been in command. He would have tried to control Trump in some way. And O'Reilly, as for O'Reilly, well, at least he would sometimes challenge Trump. 
Yeah. He wasn't all the way in the bag for Trump the way Hannity is. Again, I find that revisionism crazy, right? Because Ailes is the one who's helped create Trump. Um, and I get but, it. You know what Ailes did? I mean, when, when Ailes uh, was up against it with Megyn Kelly, where, where Trump was attacking Megyn Kelly, denouncing Megyn mm-hmm. Kelly, Ailes put out multiple statements saying, you don't know how journalism works. You know, you need to learn how journalism works. You need to knock it off. Like, at least, at least Ailes tried. Yeah, but then he was consulting with him on debate prep, right? That's true. Um, That's uh, true. A couple months later, so it is. It's hard for me to to argue that he was uh, certainly not a force for good. But it's, it's also Ailes's fault that he didn't groom a successor, and thus there was a leadership vacuum. But let's in let's, let's bring the the issue of leadership, which you do talk about a lot, all the way up to the to the actual leaders, the the owners of Fox yeah. News, the Murdoch family. Um, Rupert Murdoch often gets described as sort of a right wing media tycoon, and it's correct that he's conservative, but he's fundamentally. Uh, uh, a mercenary, right? He he cares about profits. He cares about power. <laughs> Fox News gives him both those things, um, and it's not a surprise that he did not sell Fox News to Disney, right? That's his sort of most important asset. Um, but he is old. One day he will no longer be around. Uh, and your book has a lot of sort of speculation about sort of a post Rupert future of Fox News. It's theoretically run right now by one of his sons, Lachlan. Um, but you float this idea or someone has floated this notion to you in the book that maybe James, who sort of publicly distanced himself from the company, he's been doing it for several years and now formally like I'm breaking from the company and my family yes. with my billion dollars, um, that he might return to the fold. Is I'm curious about that anecdote that you reported. Was that some was that before James had made his most sort of recent and public break? And do you think that's off the table now? This idea was first um, shared with me months ago, months before uh, James left the News Corporation board. And deep down inside, I write in the book, is this a serious possibility or is this a liberal fantasy? Time will tell, a a source said. So I am of the view this is a serious possibility. and, And that's because of the Murdoch family trust. In the event of Rupert's death, there are four votes. Each adult child has a vote. And if James can have his sisters on his side, that's Elizabeth and Prudence, it would be three votes against one. Lachlan Murdoch could see uh, control seized by the other three children. And in that event, that matters for Fox News because James is clearly more liberal. He endorsed Pete Buttigieg in the Democratic primary. He could make some significant changes at Fox News. But all of this, of course, is theoretical, and it's it's all um, a conversation in the event of Rupert's death. And in that liberal fantasy, the idea is James sort of wrests control of Fox News and doesn't make it MSNBC, right? But makes it right. a more responsible Fox News, a less odious Fox News. Is that the idea? I, I think that is the idea. And, and again, this is you know, this is coming from people in, in James Murdoch world. Um, I only spoke with him uh, uh, briefly and introduced myself and uh, at, at a party once. And uh, he declined to be interviewed for this book, just like Lachlan did. Um, I actually had the same kind of interactions with Lachlan, where they were just they were just brief. There was nothing um, yeah. substantive. But you know, all of these guys, right? When you're when you're this rich, everybody has people, right? Everybody has people, and uh, I think the people around James uh, see this as a as a real possibility. It may be years from now, um, but I wonder who would he install as a CEO of Fox News if he could, um, and what would he change? You know, would he would he want to have a standards and practices division? Would he want to have a commitment to fact checking? You know, these are the things that make news outlets news outlets, but they don't really exist at Fox right now. 
there has been a, a long running debate about sort of is there a, a competitor to Fox that would ever crop up? Um, there was a lot of speculation that, that Donald Trump was going to lose the 2016 election and then he would create his own uh, Fox, his own Trump network. Right. Um, you're seeing that speculation again. And then along the way, there's always a, oh, Breitbart is going to supplant Fox or OA, OAN is going <laughs> to supplant Fox. Um, given that Fox's viewership is old, um, and watches cable TV, and the idea of a fully distributed cable TV network is a is a very rare thing. It seems very difficult for me to imagine that any of these things actually pushes out something that's still on the cable dial. Um, I agree. Is is there a, is there a version of reality where it's, you take an existing cable TV program, you know, sort of what, what Vice tried to do with Viceland, um, and convert it into that, or or one day you just say, look, eventually everyone's going to figure out the internet, and and you can program this. Is a long winded way of saying, is there any likelihood that Fox News is supplanted by any challenger anytime soon? I don't believe there is any likelihood of that. I believe Fox News already has uh, made enough moves uh, digitally with Fox Nation, which you know it's not uh, it's not a huge success, but at least they planted a flag. Uh, they have other options for digital distribution as well. Uh, I believe they are such a monopoly, so strong in their marketplace uh, that there is no competitor that can really rise up. You know, right now OAN is a flea on the elephant's back. Fo- folks at Fox make fun of OAN; they laugh at it. You know, the president's never given a real interview to OAN, even though he sometimes uses that network to um, as leverage against Fox. You know, he'll say, "Go watch OAN instead." Yeah, but, and he'll call. He'll call on their. Yeah. their uh, he'll call on their their personality in the briefing room. But I thank think you for Trump using the right knows, term there, personality. Yeah, not yeah, exactly. yeah. I think even Fox knows that OAN is is not legit. Uh, when I say not legit, it is tiny. It, it does not have Nielsen ratings, etc. None of these wannabes pose any immediate threat to Fox. Fox is bigger than Trump. Um, but there's this debate internally, right, about what, what would happen if Trump loses? What would happen if he launches his own network? I had a, a, one, of, one of Fox's stars say to me, Trump is like Fox's Frankenstein. They helped make him, and he's out of control, and no one knows how they will do, how Fox will do when he's gone. But I, I'm skeptical of that also. I think Fox does just fine with a Democratic president. Fox is more anti-Democrat than pro-Trump. Right. That was the conventional wisdom. They did, they did better as the opposition. Uh, Heads as, you win, tails yep. you win. That's the situation right now. I could keep talking to you for a while, Brian, but but I'm sure we're going to find another chance to talk sometime in the near future. Um, I know you have a lot of books to sell, so I'm going to let you go sell those. Thank you for your time. Good <laughs> hey, luck. You know, you know how this world works. Um, I know. Th- thank you for your interest and uh, and for actually reading. You know, that's that's the uh, the most uh, the most thing I can appreciate. That's what I'm putting on business card, Peter Kafka. Sometimes I actually read the books. Thank you, Brian. <laughs> Be well. Thank Good you. luck. You Take care. Thanks again to Brian for making time. I know he's busy. He's got a full-time job and a book to promote. So we appreciate the fact that he could take a few minutes to chat with us. Thanks again to Jelani and Joel who edit and produce this show. Thanks again to our advertisers who let us bring this show to you for free for $0. Thanks again to you guys for listening, for reading, for writing. Sometimes you got suggestions about guests you want to hear from. Sometimes you got critiques of the, of the show. That's fine too. Uh, I welcome all your feedback, private or public. This is Rico Media. We will see you next week.